This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and uh, we now are at the point where we're moving into Christmas, and uh, the season of preparation has, uh, is coming to an end, and we've had a process of the processes of God at work in each of the Sundays of Advent, with Advent itself and its beginning, the announcement of a new age that is to come, the introduction of John the Baptist, John the Baptist in this uh, round of the lectionary, uh, as sending a message uh, to Jesus and asking him, are you the one who is to come or shall we wait for another? And then today we have the focus on the incarnation itself, on the birth of Jesus uh, in the Annunciation, Matthew's version of the Annunciation. And so I'm going to spend some time talking uh, in a few minutes about the virginal conception or the virgin birth and some of the other terminology that we use around all of this so that we have some idea of how we might think about it moving forward. Uh, in Isaiah, and you know my new jag, I've been doing a lot of reading again about the, the uh biblical text, um, and I saw a YouTube video uh, a couple of days ago uh, that it was a video of the 2011 meeting of the Society of Biblical Literature in San Francisco, and one of the people who was a presenter was a guy named Bart Ehrman, who has literally become rich off of the books he has written about the New Testament text. And his most famous book for the popular reader is called Misquoting Jesus. And the interesting thing about this is that he said, when I used to come to the SBL meetings, I'd go into the text criticism section, and there'd be eight people in there listening to some erudite lecture about, you know, the movable new. And he said, the last time I was there, uh, there was a debate that had gone on about the text, and um, the uh, place where they met sold tickets at $30 a piece, and there were 1,500 people in this auditorium, which says that there's been some interest in this uh, that has risen to the top uh, at a time when people used to say anybody gets interested in textual criticism has got to be crazy, right? So uh, we'll say some things about that and about the languages. So I want to speak first about Isaiah. I'm going to talk about all three readings, Isaiah, Romans, uh, and the Gospel uh, according to St. Matthew, the uh, Annunciation story in Matthew's Gospel. So in, in this reading from Isaiah, we have a very famous passage that uh, those of you who've been around the church at least for a little while have heard, which is, look... The young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. God is with us is what that means. So the, here's the situation on the ground in this reading from Isaiah. Uh, this is from Isaiah, what we would call first Isaiah in obscure scholarship, the first Isaiah, chapter 7. And in it, he's talking about King Ahaz, who is the king. I have to read this and remind myself because we had the northern and the southern kingdom. Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. 
and the northern kingdom of Israel, they're right next to one another, are at this point in opposition to one another. And the northern kingdom of Israel has made a, an agreement with Syria. And they have teamed up, and they're going to attack Ahaz, whose city or capital is Jerusalem. And so he's uh, concerned about this, and Isaiah the prophet comes to see him and talk to him to give him some suggestions and to tell him uh, some things. And Ahaz won't listen to him. One of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century in our tradition was a man named Dr. Reginald Fuller. And in this commentary on this section, he said, uh, Ahaz didn't listen to Isaiah because he wants to have no truck with Isaiah's advice. He doesn't want to listen to him. But Isaiah being Isaiah says, even if you won't listen to me, I'm going to tell you anyway. So then he, he reads him, he, he speaks this passage. And what it is is to say the Davidic dynasty, the line of King David, is going to continue. The halcyon days of Israel will now continue. God will be among us. And how this will be so is that King Hezekiah's wife is pregnant and she's going to have a son who I believe, no, the son will be Hezekiah, and uh, he will continue this dynasty. And so we read it in our lectionary because we believe it to be predictive of what we see now occurring in the coming of Jesus several hundred years later. And we believe that this is the fulfillment of what is read in the Old Testament. You can read that reading without any knowledge or, or uh connection to Christianity if you want that's what Jews do they read that and they read it because they believe it's the fulfillment of how they understand God's presence in the world and in history but Christians read that text certainly the ones who wrote the New Testament and said in light of this this is how we understand God's continuation and we're going to see this in the reading from the gospel uh, according to Matthew So then Romans, Paul is reading a rather, if you ever wonder, if try to read Paul's epistles, even in English, you will see that it's like these run-on sentences all the time, and they go on and on and on and on in these long paragraphs, and you can't make sense. So it's an opportunity to remind us, if you come to Episcopalian 101 next time, I'm going to have visual aids. Um, The... the, the, uh, The Bible, the original texts of the Bible, had no punctuation. The original manuscripts had no punctuation. And whether they're, uh, how do you say this, Nancy? Unctual? Unctual, excuse me. Uh, The unctuals are the capitals. So some of the manuscripts are written in all caps, and all the words are run together, just like one of those Sunday puzzles where you circulate, you circle it inside, and it says Dennis the Menace or something like that. You know, that's what the what the text looks like. So you either have them in all caps, or you have them in a caps and then lowercase. And these are all handwritten. So Paul's letters are you know, trying to make sense of that. 
and they were written by a secretary. He dictated them, so they're just going along, along, along like this. So you have to know where to make the pauses or how to punctuate the text. So I remember now when you read Paul and think, gee, this is impossible. And this, the opening of the uh, epistle to the Romans is, is like that. But he gives the Romans a early creedal statement about who Jesus is, which he believes they already know. But he's repeating this to them. Descended from David according to the flesh, designated or enthroned son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So that's something that early on people began to think about Jesus as they began to formulate in their mind uh, who he was connected to, what difference did it make, what do we mean when we speak of him as the Messiah, is he connected to David at all, and so forth. And for somebody like Paul, a Jew, this is very important to connect Jesus up with the, the continuity of the great tradition. Remember, Episcopalians have three things that they appeal to for authority, what they consider to be authoritative. The Bible, the tradition with a capital T, and our human reason and experience. And maybe our human reason and experience are going to come into play in a couple of minutes or in a few seconds, actually, when I talk about the gospel and the um, birth of Jesus and the conception of Jesus. So the first thing I want to talk about is to clear up some terminology. I think it's important to do this once in a while. We have a, a doctrine that exists in Western Christianity in some places uh, that's known as the Immaculate Conception. Right? The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with the birth of Jesus. The Immaculate Conception is the doctrine that says promulgated by what we now call the Roman Catholic Church, that says that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. So Mary was born with a post-baptismal grace. She doesn't need to be baptized in our old-fashioned terminology. She is uh, without sin. Now, as my Old, Testament, uh, my Old Testament professor, Joseph Hunter, who was a Benedictine monk for 30 years, said, well, you can believe that if you want to. <laughs> right? A lot of the medieval theologians did not agree with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception when it was out there in the Middle Ages, and they, some people decided this is what it is. So that, that, that is, has nothing to do with what we're talking about in this particular case. And what we're talking about, really, is something called the virginal conception, that Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, not in the normal pattern of how human beings create other human beings. So the kids, you know, when I taught religion at St. Michael's School, the ones in the fourth grade or something like that, said, well, geez, how did Mary get pregnant? And you'd say, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her and they go oh <laughs> that's when people were still a little credulous you know what I mean when you're that age now the clear reason that it's in the New Testament uh, is because they want to say something about Jesus's divine origins but now I'm going to talk about this in terms of saying for many of you this may seem incredible 
right? We don't know of any other instances where something like this has occurred. The reference to the virgin birth, the virginal conception, some people call it the virgin birth, is only in two places in the New Testament. It's in the infancy narratives in the Gospel according to St. Matthew and the Gospel according to St. Luke. Paul never mentions the virginal conception or the virgin birth. It's not mentioned in any of the other writings of the New Testament, the Acts, or in Mark or in John. Only in those two places. But here's the thing. In the reading from Isaiah that we heard, it says, Look, the young man, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. So in our Bible, the New Revised Standard Version, it translates young woman from the Hebrew, which is correct. Alma. Matthew, who very well may have been a rabbi and knew Hebrew when he wrote his gospel, says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And the biblical text that he uses to do this is the Greek Old Testament, called the Septuagint, which came from, you know, Egypt and other places, and it was created in about 300 B.C., for Jews who couldn't read or speak Hebrew anymore. So they made a translation into Greek. So if you go to a Greek Orthodox church today and you hear the, an Old Testament reading, they're going to read in Greek to you from the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint. And in the Greek Old Testament, where it says, the young woman, it says, Parthenos, which means... Virgin. So the question we have to ask ourselves is why did Luke and Matthew use that text to describe this event? And the answer certainly may be that there was a pre existing oral and written tradition that predates the writing of Matthew and Luke, at least, uh, that uh, advanced the tradition that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. So here's the question you want to ask yourself. What difference does it make? Right? You know, I've been a, I've been a pastor for a while, and I've had people who have diff great difficulty with things like this. They just, they just find them incredible. Uh, I'm a conservative, and I sort of believe this stuff ex animo, as they say in Latin, from the heart. Right? But... My own view is, is that if people need to remain agnostic about these matters, it's not the end of the world and the Christian, your Christian faith and belief does not rise and fall on a literal interpretation of these texts. Only Matthew and Luke have a infancy narrative, which is a story of how Jesus got born and Mary found out she was pregnant and then they go and then the, some, they go to Egypt and they come back and they do all this stuff. That's all part of the infancy narrative. It appears nowhere else and is referred to nowhere else in the New Testament. So when you think about that, you need to say, well, maybe I can think about this uh, in a different way. There's also a doctrine that puts, that's right next to this uh, from a long time ago, 
you know, the Immaculate Conception, the Virginal Conception, and then we have something called the Perpetual Virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right? She always remained a virgin, even after she went through the birth process and had Jesus, which seems to me kind of incredible, right? But there are many people that hold to this. Episcopalians, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, most of the mainline Protestants have accepted the virginal conception. And some of those groups have also accepted the perpetual virginity of Mary. We live in an age now of, of uh, very uh, of strong skepticism about everything. So it's very difficult to wade through that because we also get now all connected up with science or dif the differences and whether people just refuse to face the facts and do all of that sort of thing. But what's there is that there is a long-standing tradition uh, about this. So... I um, think it's okay to remain agnostic about these matters. If you can't, if you can't get there, here from there, or whatever, however you say that, uh, that's that's all right. There are other things that are uh, more important in terms of what's of the the core doctrines. The uh, the virginal conception is one of the five fundamentals. You know, we people throw this word around fundamentalists. At the turn of the 20th century, the end of the 19th, the turn of the 20th century, I think there was a guy named Benjamin Warfield or somebody in his group at Princeton uh, were very upset about the influences of continental European biblical criticism on uh, the American scene in, in um, pr principally Protestant seminaries in this country. So they published a, a couple of books. One of them is five volumes long. It's called The Fundamentals. And it's about all of the things that you need to believe in order to, to be an orthodox Christian believer. And they broke them down finally into five things. The, the, the uh, virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, and three other things that they said needed to be asserted uh, if you're uh, on the right track. So you've heard me say this uh, many times before. My uh, experience and point of view on this is most of us find it easier to belong before we believe. <clears throat> or we may believe some stuff and we belong and we're just hoping or not. So uh, that's, the, that's also important to say. The other thing to, to say, which is uh, hard for some people to digest, is that Episcopalians, Anglican Christians, believe that the church is prior to the scriptures. The church is prior to the scriptures. We wrote the Bible. The Bible didn't fall down from the sky in a hermetically sealed unit, and then we had it, right? So when we talk about its veracity, um, or even to use a, a, a traditionalist term, its inerrancy, it really has to do with the way in which God transmitted his word through the human authors. And through the human authors means it's often prone to mistakes. And it doesn't mean it's any less true because there are mistakes, you know. 
It means that uh, we need to labor and do our best to say, well, we know where these mistakes came from, and uh, here's probably what the best reading is of this particular thing, even though there are, there are many differences. And when we do that, we can be fairly assured that we have a very, very reliable uh, English translation of the Bible and what it says. So that's important to say. Uh, we're ready to go to Christmas now and talk about uh, God becoming a human being and the relationship between the humanity and divinity of Jesus and why that's important. I would much rather uh, put my stake down with the divinity of Christ than I would the, the virginal conception. I think in the hierarchy of what's, what's essential, that is. And how we talk about that is an important thing. So the focus in Christmas time is going to be on that and how we understand what it means, what it means for us. Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development, means that in this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. And that means if he's the template that we lay over our own image, made in the image and likeness of God, we contain in ourselves our full humanity, and also aspects of our divinity. As Father Thomas Keating says, we are not God, but our true self is God. And so how we understand that divine spark and how it animates us as we live is really part of the uh, Christian task to discover that, each of us uh, ourselves. So give thanks for the opportunity to do that, and more later. <laughs> Amen.